Well, as you know, we're in a series on mission this month in May, and today we're going to look at what is wrong with the world. Why do we find ourselves in the predicament that we are in that the world needs to be rescued by God? Why do we find ourselves in the situation where the world is filled with suffering and evil and the job before us as the church is to do something about this, to make a difference. Well, why? Why are we in a situation where we have to deal with suffering and evil? Now, that's a big topic for us to tackle this morning, but in the context of mission, that's what we're going to try to do. Everyone wears glasses. Everyone wears glasses, but we are not always aware that we are wearing them. The glasses we all wear are called our world view. Everyone wears glasses. We look through them to see our world. If you are born in a Tibetan Buddhist family, you'll see the world differently to an Aussie Christian who sees the world differently to a Danish atheist or an Indian Hindu born in Andhra Pradesh. How we see the world is shaped by the framework of belief that we have grown up with, that we have developed, that we have taken on. And depending on the framework we see the world through, the lenses of our worldview will deeply affect how we answer the big questions of life. And one of the big questions of life is, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? Romans 8 verse 18 begins... Paul, the Apostle, writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Apostle Paul did not float above the world of suffering. The Apostle Paul knew 2,000 years ago what it was like to suffer. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, I've been flogged, stoned, left for dead nearly drowned in rivers, in oceans. This is a man who knows all about suffering. And I have a very strong hunch. There are people here who have lived more years than I, and some have lived less. But we all know that suffering is part of this world. Amen? We live with it all the time. I don't have to make any compelling argument. The argument is there. But there's also evil. The mystery we deal with, the problem we grapple with is, is not just suffering, but it's what is this other part, evil, that exists in the world? Is evil a reality? I would say yes, a very present reality that we grapple with. Uh, a few years ago, I found myself walking through the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem and I read, it said, in Auschwitz, 
12,000 men, women and children, Jews, were killed every day. Evil on a level that is hard to imagine that someone could devise a way to take people's lives like that on such a mass scale. I walked through some years later the killing fields in Cambodia and it was the same story, a madman, Pol Pot, and people went along with his idea of inflicting such cruelty and evil that you just wonder, how is this possible? In 1994, our family were driving up to Queensland on a holiday, and you might remember where you were when the news came through on the radio. The tectonic plates had shifted and had caused multiple tsunamis, and 250,000 people were dead that morning. The tsunami in 1994, uh, millions were injured and displaced. And we wonder, wow, this world is a dangerous place, whether it's madmen and women or just so-called acts of God, suffering, evil, relationships on the micro, relationships break down, trust is abused, cancer is diagnosed daily, corporate structures crush the powerless. And through whichever lens... You see the world, you have to ask the question, why is there so much suffering? And the question that if you believe in God or not, many people would ask, and I imagine many of us have asked, is this, if there is a God in heaven, why doesn't he do something about the suffering? Is that a fair question? If there's a God in heaven, what is he doing? And the next statement, which makes a lot of sense, is this. If God is all-powerful, but he doesn't do anything about the suffering in the world, then he's not all good. But maybe he's all good and he wants to do something about the suffering, but he can't. Well, he's not all-powerful. It's the atheistic argument. You can't have both. It's so-called by them. You can't have both if you believe in a, a good and all-powerful God. Well, he can't be both because he's just not acting. What is our response to that argument as Christians? Well, I, I think firstly we need to point out the problem of evil and suffering, which has been rightly called the mystery rather than a problem. The mystery of suffering and evil is not something that is unique to those who believe in a higher power or God. Amen? We're all in this. So if you don't believe in a God, you think, oh, I'm going to take the easy way. There's too many problems with religion. I'm going to just believe there's no God. Well, okay, you know what? Your worldview, those lenses lead you down. It leads you down the path of natural selection. Because there's no other higher power. The bully always wins in evolution, right? Natural selection is profoundly a violent lens to see the world through. Nothing is stopping the bully animal or the bully human being. They crush violently all who get in their way. 
Suffering and evil is a problem that we all have to deal with no matter what lenses you look through. In fact, you might know Richard Dawkins, have heard him on Q&A or read one of his books. He's one of the famous uh, pop atheists of our day. He said this, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme nor reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA, he says, neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. And you know, lots of people don't mind the sound of that because it's sort of, it's, at least it's checking out from all the problems of a higher power and religion and spirituality and just, well, I'll just go with that scientific approach, that scientific atheism, there, there is no God, but it's very hard to be consistent. And that was shown with Richard Dawkins um, a little later on, a few years ago, in fact, there was a cricket test match in England. You might remember Stuart Broad, who's a fast bowler, was batting against Australia and he snicked the ball and it was caught by the wicketkeeper. He was clearly out. Television showed it. Everyone in the stand knew it. All over the world, people knew Stuart Broad was out. Now, as a good Englishman, a good gentleman, many thought he should have walked because the umpire gave him not out. Australia had no more uh, electronic appeals, if that makes any sense to you and you're in cricket. But there was no way to make him leave. He would have had to have left the crease purely because of honesty. Now, in today's professional world of cricket, not many people walk of their own accord. They wait for an umpire to give them out. Richard Dawkins said this about Stuart Broad. He said, Stuart Broad is a disgrace to England. He should have done the right thing and walked. Of course, people responded mercilessly to Dawkins on Twitter saying that Stuart Broad was just dancing to the tune of his own DNA. See, suffering's a problem. And I know I'm not talking to a bunch of Christians who don't think about this stuff because some of us are grappling with our faith right now, I would imagine. I just want to just encourage you, there's no easy answer out there. If, if you look at Christianity and say, I don't have the answer about suffering, if you find it out there with no God, please let us all know. Because it, there's no easy answer out there. So we're all stuck in this profound mystery about life, yet it it's not so mysterious if we use the Bible to inform the lenses we see the world through. So what does the Bible say to us about understanding suffering? And I think then this gives us a framework for understanding the need for mission. Why is there a job for us? Well, Romans says in verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, I, I, I don't suggest that's easy to understand, but really what it's pointing to is something happened that was cataclysmic in, this, in the history of this world. They're talking there about what Genesis 3 produced. When the first human beings, the Bible tells us, Adam and Eve lived in perfect relationship with their creator as the created, and then Adam and Eve were given the job of dominion over all creation under God. They had to obey his word. He created all things by the power of his word. And he said, I want you to obey my word. And they disobeyed the words of God. Sin entered the world. Decay on every level entered the world. Death entered the world. Their relationship with God was broken. But not just the humans, creation in its entirety. The global life was subjected to decay. That is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, verse 19 and following. This earth is groaning. This earth is groaning because of what sin has done to us. Read it. Some of us are reading through the Bible now in a summarised form, and we would have just read this in the last few weeks. Genesis chapter 3 is a dark passage, and then chapter... Um, 4 to 11 just gives us this terrible spreading of what it meant. Shame and guilt and murder and lies and death and suffering and suffering and evil. Blood is shed, vice of every kind. And then in chapter 6, it says God uncreated what he had created. He sent a flood in judgment. The earth groaning, groaning for salvation Everything was spoiled because of sin, Genesis 3. And then you read Genesis chapter 12 to 50, and we talked a bit about it in our small group, and different ones said, they don't treat each other very nicely in chapter 12 to 50. It's not a nice read. <laughs> where's the love? You know, where's the Christianity? Uh, well, Christianity comes a bit later, but Chapter 12 to 50 of Genesis tells us about the, the patriarchs, the, the first fathers and mothers of Israel. They are stained with sin, yes? <laughs> they are bad. Again and again, they're bad. Suffering and evil is there in the milieu of the micro of family life. Suffering, evil. Why is it there it's there because of Genesis chapter 3. Now, as Christians, we can have that throwaway line, someone's suffering, and the worst possible thing you could say to them is, who sinned? You or your parents? God's obviously judging you. And if anyone's ever said that to you, look the passage up. Jesus gave us an answer about that. Now, it's not as simple as that, Jesus said. It's not just the person's not blind because the parents sinned. The person's blind because God's going to show his glory through this person. Yet, yet as Christians, with our lenses on, we must remember when we try to understand the mystery of suffering and evil in the world, we must remember that in a foundational sense, it is all there as a problem because of what? Sin. It is there because of the, the problem of man and woman going their own way. And it's a global phenomenon. The earth is groaning. 
The earth is groaning. Romans 8 goes on in verse 23 to say, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Again, I know that's not particularly easy to make sense of when you just hear it read out. But something's happened. You've got sin affecting the world and creation's groaning in its suffering. And then Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly waiting for our adoption to sonship. Adam and Eve, they lost their sonship in the, in the fall. Now it says followers of Jesus, Christians, are waiting to be adopted into sonship. Something's happened from relationship lost to a relationship established. Sonship with God, family, relationship back. What happened in between? Well, I mentioned the name before Jesus happened in between. Jesus came, lived a perfect life to fulfill God's promise to Abram back in Genesis 12. God looked at the suffering and evil and he said, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to fix it from within. I'm going to call the people who are broken and, and flawed, Abram, Abraham, father of many nations. You're going to have a son, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob will have 12 sons, basically. He'll become the, the tribes of Israel. And through one particular people group, I am going to deal with the problem of suffering ultimately of sin and bless the world. And Israel failed miserably until Jesus, a Jew, came along and lived the perfect life that Israel could never live, died the perfect death to pay for the sin of the world and rose again victoriously from the grave. Amen? This is what Jesus did. He did something in history that affects the world that affects suffering and evil forever. That's why we, who put our faith in this one, Jesus, can look forward to a re renewed, perfected relationship with God and creation and everyone else. Verse 26 continues in Romans. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I think the key about suffering that we need to understand as Christians is this. God's way to deal with suffering is to get down and dirty amongst it and heal it from the down up. That's the beauty of Christianity. Suffering's a global phenomenon that we all have to deal with. The way God has chosen to deal with it is from within. He wanted to do it from within in Israel. He wanted to do it through Jesus and he did. 
And then he sends his spirit to come even within us. And today is Pentecost, where the spirit came inside of us. And God himself, by his spirit, gives us wordless groans that come out of us in the midst of suffering. Is, is, are you with that? Isn't that a beautiful picture of does the question, does God care about suffering? And the strong answer is, yes, we know he does. He is not ambivalent to my suffering. Why does God let suffering keep going on? And the answer is, I don't know. But does he care? Yes, he does. Amen? Does he know about my suffering? Does he know what it's like? Yes, he does. Jesus walked the earth. And not only that, but God by his spirit, the spirit of Christ, walks in my life and your life by faith and endures suffering with us. Somehow God is dealing with the suffering that is going on in this planet mysteriously from within the church. If you understand that like beautifully, more power to you. If you're lost sitting here, join the club. This is not easy to understand how God deals with suffering. But what we do know is he deals from within with us. First Peter has this amazing passage in the beginning of Peter's letter where Peter says, God allows suffering in our lives because suffering is like a furnace that purifies us and refines us. We don't always know what the beautiful reason is that God allows suffering, but there are clear metaphors and ideas in the Bible. Suffering is like a furnace and as we walk through suffering, there is a purifying that goes on in us that makes us more like Jesus, that makes us see even more clearly the way God sees things. Way back in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, anyone remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar made up an idol. He said, everyone's got to worship this silly man-made idol. And if you don't, I'll throw you in a furnace. And three men, who were they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to worship a man-made idol. That sounds silly. So we're going to continue to worship the one true living God. And they found out that these guys were disobeying Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, I'm a man of my word. I'm going to throw you in a furnace. And they stoked the furnace so hot that the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace died because of the heat. And the men were in there, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and the Bible says he came back and he looked in there, and there were three men thrown in, and how many did he see standing in there? And that's not a throwaway story for Sunday school. What does that mean to us? What does that mean for the framework, the glasses we wear in the year 2016? It says the way that God works in our lives often requires a furnace that we have to walk through. And in that furnace of suffering and mystery, we will be purified and changed into the people God wants us to be. But we don't do it alone. We don't do it alone. We have one who walks with us through the fire. And that's why Romans 8 can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he is for us. 
He showed that he was for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He hasn't forgotten about us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall any flame... Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, Isaiah 43 says, when you walk through the fire, not if, I'm sorry to say. When, when we walk through the fire of suffering, which is our lot in life, until the Lord Jesus returns and perfects this groaning earth, when we walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour am with you. Those of us who've walked through flames often feel like we can... doesn't feel like I'm not burning. <laughs> Again, that's the mystery. And we talked about this before, we have to see through these eyes of faith, stuff that we can't often touch. We say, no, God is with me. He promised he would be, and he's walking with us, and Jesus proved it. He walked through suffering himself. And Jesus promises through Pentecost, by faith, that he'll walk through our lives with us. We can't forget Philippians. Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, don't we all? And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And this is where it comes to mission, and we haven't spent much time on mission, but as we fellowship with a contented heart and spirit, with faith, with a confidence in our good God, as we walk through the sufferings that are common to man, with others speaking words of hope into their lives and ours, mysteriously, our lives take on the shape of a cross. It's been called the cruciform life. The church is called to live a cruciform existence. When people look at us, they don't see a victorious people on the top of the hill looking down on the suffering. They see us in the shape of the cross amongst the suffering. Amen? That's our calling. That's the way he does it. A cross-shaped existence. Biblical worldview glasses tell us that suffering is immensely real. The problem of evil is very real, but God has acted in Christ and he's acting through his church to bring about an end, to heal creation once and for all. And as Christians, we have a part mysteriously in seeing that end come. We have a role as a church, as individuals, to see God's light, his goodness, his justice, his protection, his peace Come, his gospel proclaimed in word and deed. To who? All nations, all people groups, all languages, every ethnos in Pakistan, every group that wants to hear the gospel in their language. Amen? That's our calling. And we keep asking the Lord, what will that mean for me? 
for my family. And our response needs to be, as individuals, family and church, as for me, we will serve the Lord. As for us, we'll serve the Lord. You tell us where to go, Lord God. You tell us who to partner with. Because we know, Lord God, that you are working all things together mysteriously for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to your purposes that are bigger than ours. So I wonder as we on this day, and let us not forget for the history until Jesus returns, that God is sending us a message that today is significant for Hornsby Baptist and it's Pentecost. Pentecost is the day of the new age. It's the new era. It's spring. It's flowers blooming. It's something fresh. It's power with suffering. It's God amongst his people. It's excitement. We as a church are called to stand with the oppressed to be light bearers and truth tellers and tear sharers and joy givers. May we become, day by day, the church that our Lord Jesus is really, really proud of. Amen?